You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, April 1st, 2006, show number 11. Today's topics are evil geniuses for a better tomorrow and companion animal selection optimization. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org. You can Skype us at intice. You can IM us at int underscore ice at yahoo or intellectualice at aim. Here's your host, Jim Vance. Welcome to Intellectual Icebergs. Once again, I'm your host, Jim Vance. With me today, we've got Robert Raplin. Hello. Today, we're talking about something that's um, absolutely fascinating, if not astonishing, but for some strange reason, is something that should be so seemingly obvious, it it won't take too much to put the pieces together. We're talking about something called the Evil Geniuses for a Better Tomorrow. So, Rod, let's just start this right out of the gate, since this is just incredible. Who are they? Who are these people? Well, okay. First of all, let me tell you how I ran into this. As you know, I've been researching the alcoholism thing and run into how numerous people are completely blocking the spread of the Sinclair method of dealing with alcoholism. Right. One of our listeners wrote in and told me about this group, and that cast me on a very long series of research and a few dozen phone calls, emails, and unofficial visits later. I have uncovered such an, an amazing, interesting story. And, of course, I've got to share it with you all. Now, well, my thing is, though, the evil genius is for a better tomorrow. Isn't this the moniker that, that you guys have been using for your, your villains group from the City of Heroes, City of Villains? Yeah, and actually the listener said that that's why he specifically mentioned it to me, was because we replicated the name of that group in our supervillain group. That's just kind of creepy. Yeah, isn't it, though? Okay, so well, who are they? I mean, let's, let's get into it. Well, first of all, they're not really an organization. They're more of a loose-knit group of like-minded people who just have to be working towards the same goal. They don't have a central leadership. There's no committee somewhere who makes all the decisions for them. They just work as a network to accomplish some pretty amazing things. Okay, so they're not something like a Illuminati-type group. They're just a bunch of people who are on the same wavelength. Right. Okay, how long have they been around? When did they come into existence? Well, that's one of those things that's kind of lost in the annals of history. Since they don't actually have any central organization, you can't really tell when they started, but it's definitely known that they have, in fact, been influencing events since at least the turn of the 19th century. Amazing. Okay, well, what are some of their goals? Apparently they formed specifically because it's been observed by numerous people that the way we run our society, we tend to compensate for characteristics that in the wild would actually cause death, dismemberment, destruction, things like rampant stupidity. A person's painting the wall, they decide to take a step back to look at their work and not even think that they're up on a 12-foot ladder. They go and they get themselves a few million dollars in a lawsuit suing the ladder company. This is the way our society works. As a result, we've actually gone into reverse Darwinism, where our society in general is getting more and more infirm and more and more genetically challenged, so to speak. Interesting. Okay, so they're saying that we're deteriorating rather than improving. Right, and they consider it their job to compensate for this deterioration or to stop it in its tracks or reverse it. They spend a lot of time doing things like encouraging people to take up dangerous hobbies. They've subsidized, for instance, the rock climbing industry for at least a couple of decades. 
discouraging those things that cause otherwise infirm people to continue on to breeding age, that type of thing. So beyond that, are they into, say, politics and those sort of arenas as well, or is this purely from a recreational and social perspective? Well, most of the people who are involved with this are the people who have so much money that if they were actually to get into politics, they would lose power. Hmm, okay. They aren't actually the politicians per se, but more the people who purchase politicians. CEOs, high rollers, that type of thing. But they do influence government policy in order to encourage Darwinism, to try and cause people with poor genetics to weed themselves out of the gene pool, preferably before they have an opportunity to breed. Interesting. So what would be a good example? It's just off the top of your head. What's probably the number one political agenda that they would use to support that that theory. Well, for instance, the drug war has been an absolute bonanza for them. Okay. The way the laws are written, they can enforce it after age 18. So once you turn 18, you're seriously discouraged from actually getting involved in the drug trade. But previous to that, they can't take away your property because you can't own any. You have the juvenile court system to prevent them from long-term jailing, and you can't convince them that the guy they've known since they were 10 is actually a narcotics agent. So it just doesn't work under age 18. As a result, 89% of our kids graduate from high school having tried some drug or another. So that's where all of the drug trade exists, and the drug trade is an incredibly dangerous behavior. Well, some people have equated it to being genocide of the black race. Well, that's actually part of it, but it's not genocide. It's an extremely accelerated form of evolution. Essentially, the people who don't have the characteristics to become successful at a normal job wind up in the drug trade, and the ones who aren't fast, on their foot, smart, that type of thing, wind up getting killed either by the police or in the various drug violence behaviors. Our murder rate is literally three or four times what it is during the non-drug war periods in our history. History. So is it purely racism, or is it something beyond that? The black people are seriously, obviously oppressed in our society. Historically speaking, there's no particular impetus for it to reverse. So in order to stop this from happening, we need to improve the black race so that they are significantly better than the white race. And then the tables will turn and things will go back the other direction. But for this to happen, you have to kill off all of those in the black race with a genetic shortage. But it's not just the black race that's being improved, it's also the richer end of it. You may notice that all of the most dangerous drugs are also extremely expensive drugs. So while all the black people are getting killed in the gang warfare and by police, all of the rich people are getting killed by drug overdoses and their lives are going to hell simply because there's no information on how to safely use drugs. And you may notice that lawmakers specifically try to avoid anything that might make drug use less dangerous. Good point. Very valid point. So there's an interesting tactic. Right. So what happens is that only the intelligent people can survive serious drug use. Hmm. Instant Darwinism. It works for them. Fascinating. Okay. So this is starting to sound something like a eugenics program taken into modern times. Well, actually, no. Eugenics is a little bit different. What eugenics is, is somebody taking their specific idea of what the ideal person is and then killing off everybody else or giving these people specific advantage in breeding process. But usually it's just killing off everyone else. Right. 
Okay. And the problem with that is that anybody who can come up with an ideal in their head is usually so whacked out on their own personal superiority that they can't effectively judge what a superior human being is. And also this results in a decreasing of genetic variety, which invariably results in a weakening of the species. So their plans aren't eugenics because they're not selecting. They're letting nature select it, but they're giving nature more opportunity to do the selecting. Interesting. So how would they feel about something like, say, stem cell research? Well, stem cell research and actually medicine in general is one of the things that's been causing this problem in the first place. You have people who are probably not meant to live to breeding age who are living on into their 50s, and then their children have to be treated for this, and then their grandchildren, and you eventually get to the point where a significant portion of our population is having to be treated for some genetic illness or another, because that's just the way it spreads. If they don't die off, it spreads. Taking that into, let's say, a psychiatric perspective, don't they say the same thing about antidepressants and such? I mean, they say that, what, one-fifth of the population are depressed? Well, actually, one of the things about antidepressants is that almost every single one of them causes birth defects. So what's happening there is that they're encouraging the use of antidepressants so that those who can't handle their own life, whether it's psychologically or just through a lack of desire to be self-responsible, wind up not being able to have children. So they're using the medical field in multiple ways to increase the Darwinistic factors. Absolutely. Well, it's a very known thing that one of the fastest ways to get sick is spend a lot of time going to doctors. People who go to doctors get sick and die a lot faster than people who don't go to doctors. What's happened is that they've increased the power of the pharmaceutical companies, and the pharmaceutical companies like to crush competition. So if there's a better drug out there to treat something, they'll wipe it out of existence or purchase it and file it away or something like that. And as a result, most of the medicines out there have some pretty questionable side effects. Okay. Tying that into something taking it even further with birth defects. What about birth control and contraception? They actually seriously encourage birth control and contraception. Which would be logical since they're trying to weed out. Absolutely. The fewer 14-year-olds out there having kids, the more opportunity those 14-year-olds will have to die before they have kids. That's just the way they think. Fascinating. Well, now, let me ask you this question. How does this tie in? Is this purely in the United States, or is this a global project? Oh, them? it's definitely global. Okay. They just have infiltrated certain areas much further than they have in others? Well, not so much infiltrated as in a lot of cases purchased. Okay, so this really isn't what you would call a conspiracy theory so much as a socialization theory. Something like that, yeah. It's a broad belief in how societies should be managed. Okay. What about issues that crop up unexpectedly, like, say, the war on terror? It doesn't seem like it was a pre-planned event. Uh, from what I understand, the group in general was against it because it caused huge amounts of random death. And random death is not something that is ever in a society's favor because you wipe out the good traits with the bad traits. And believe me, good traits are harder to create than bad traits are to get rid of. So you don't want random destruction at any time. Okay. On the other hand, now that it's actually started, it's actually more in their favor because what's happening is the zealots and the stupidly enthusiastic wind up going off and getting themselves killed in military raids and suicide bombings, and that decreases the general stupid zealotry of the races involved in general. So rampant patriotism and that sort of thing works to their favor in this case. Right. People who can't think for themselves are usually prime targets for Darwinism. Have they begun to influence the religious sector at all? Because that sounds like a perfect opportunity for them to work within as well. Well, religion has always been one of their favorite tools. Essentially what religion is, is it's a pecking order, where you get the more capable people who advance in the order, and then the least capable people wind up getting tossed to, tossed to the side. This is even better, though, because the less capable people wind up giving all their money 
money to the more capable people. And so the less capable people, as we know in our society, the ones with less money have fewer mating opportunities. And it all kind of balances out. Fascinating. So they're basically everywhere. What about, say, the entertainment industry? Are they involved in that? They're especially involved in the entertainment industry. You may have noticed, for instance, a lot of women have been complaining because they just can't compete with the model of beauty that's been provided by mass entertainment. And this has actually resulted in a decrease of mating opportunities for them. And fewer married women also means fewer married guys. It's actually causing ugly people to not be able to stand the sight of each other and not have sex. And there you go, Darwinism again. That's just beyond fascinating. I'm starting to have to re-examine everything on a, on a daily basis, I think. Although it seems totally logical. With all this information that you've conveyed, and it seemingly being obvious that these people exist, despite the fact that we haven't really noticed them, aren't you going to be getting in some serious trouble? I mean, aren't you expecting a knock on your door here pretty soon? Well, that's actually one of the funny things about it, and I actually asked them that specific question. Why are you telling me, a person of the media, even if it's podcast media, all about this? Basically, the answer that I got was, no one's going to believe you. And in fact, just by telling people, you're going to decrease the credibility of such a thing existing. They want people to think that this is a conspiracy theory. Yeah, that would cover up any possible rumor of its existence pretty well. Nowadays, just the very labeling of something as a conspiracy theory is enough to make people completely discount all evidence. It's absolutely amazing the way even, for instance, our government can get away with the stuff that it's getting away with. We have the companies that the president and vice president have money in making ha money hand over fist from this war. But if you, if you point that out to people, they'll just yell conspiracy theory. I can tell a person all of this information with a straight face, and mostly they'll just think it's an April Fool's joke or something. Correct me if I'm wrong here. The, the concept basically is stupidity should hurt. Yes. Okay. No, stupidity should be fatal. Stupidity should be fatal. I, I need a bumper sticker that says that. Would you, can I buy one of them from them? No. Unlikely, yeah, they probably wouldn't be that Make direct. your own. Make my own. I can do that. I, I got an inkjet printer. Yeah. So the evil geniuses for a better tomorrow. Okay, I like that. I like that. I got to figure out how to sign up with them. No, I don't. Never mind. I'm going to drop that right there, too. Anyway, thank you, Rob. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated, and um, hopefully people will not think this is an April Fool's joke. Thank you, Jim. Have a good one. There are no individual pens in the world. Each of the macro particles that we think of as a pen is really just an instance of penness. In the macro scale world, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle tends to work in reverse, where if you don't know what something is doing, then you probably don't know where it is either. Pens exemplify this by collapsing into a generalized pen waveform the moment they leave our sphere of attention. When we look for them, our chances of finding one are in inverse proportion to the amount of attention that something else has taken up. These waveforms will occasionally coalesce into new instances of penness, but not always in the place where we left the pen. More often, in fact, they coalesce at places called strange attractors. Pen waveforms exhibit a form of quantum entanglement with the minds that attempt to grasp them, and follow them on their paths as they wander around. Because of this, strange attractors exist as horizontal surfaces that are in intersections of these paths in high traffic areas, like in a busy hallway near the front door or near a well-used telephone. If you introduce more instances of penness into an area, this increases the density of the waveform, and thus increases your chances of being able to find an actual instance at one of these strange attractors when you need one. 
This phenomena also works with many other small inexpensive items. Bottle openers, corkscrews, cigarette lighters, for instance, behave in the same way. Although for some reason the strange attractor for cigarette lighters seems to be Brian's pocket. Regardless of the type of object, there always seems to be a slow leak in the waveform that causes a gradual depletion of whatever you're looking for. Like the relentless foraging of underpants gnomes, the waveform of Pendus leaks into the environment, coalescing in nearby glove compartments, purses, checkbooks, until you can truly say that there are no pens in your world. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm your host, still, Jim Vance. Today with me I have Dr. Laura Mirclair. Dr. Mirclair has done some amazing research into optimization of companion animal selection, which I hope she'll explain. And today she's going to speak with us about her work with cats. Welcome, Dr. Mirclair. Thanks, Jim. I'm really happy to be here. Well, let's start off right out of the gate. How did you get started in studying companion animal selection optimization? There's a mouthful. Yeah, well, Jim, actually, this work started with research we were doing for the Purina Pets for People Senior Adoption Program. This program matches a companion animals from shelters with elderly individuals in an effort to improve the quality of life and lifespan of the elderly. One of the main challenges of this program is that it's sometimes difficult to tell which animals are going to make the best companions for specific individuals. In some cases, the animals chosen for the humans created very unsatisfactory matches, actually reducing the quality of life of the individual and subsequently the lifespan of the animal, which was was removed and usually euthanized. This was occurring often enough that both Purina and the animal shelters realized a more scientific approach to matching humans and animals was needed. So we were commissioned by Purina to create a battery of tests that would help identify both human and animal qualities that are essential to a strong positive match between the human and their pet companion. Okay, I'm familiar with the pets for people, and it makes sense that they'd want a more scientific way of pairing up pets with elderly owners. Yes, yes. So as we studied the human-animal interactions, it became evident that some individuals formed very quick bonds with some of the animals. And this quick bond formation was linked to dramatically decreased anxiety and depression, increased self-esteem, lowered blood pressure, and increased brain activity in the human companion. Specifically, we saw this less with men and less with dogs or other types of companion animals such as rabbits and birds. We also saw it less when the animal was being considered for placement with couples or families. In other words, we saw the most statistically significant rapid bond formation between cats and elderly women who were single, divorced, or widowed. This intrigued us greatly, so after we completed the battery of tests for Purina, we sought a grant to continue studying rapid bond formation between cats and humans. At that point, we knew that cats could improve the quality of life of their human companions, but we didn't know what the causal factors might be, and we needed a much larger and more focused study to rule out some of the correlational factors. Unfortunately, we were not able to identify the causal factors for the rapidly forming bond between the cats and the human subjects, but something very interesting happened during the study. An elderly female research subject, one who had already formed rapid bonds with 17 cats in the study tripped outside the research center as she was arriving for her session one afternoon and she fractured her hip. 
The cats with whom she had bonded were, at the time, hooked up to electrodes in preparation for a series of experiments. The cats all suddenly started exhibiting very high levels of stress all at once. We didn't know what was going on, but a few minutes later we heard sirens and found out that our receptionist had seen the elderly woman fall and had called paramedics. We now know that the woman fell and broke her hip within minutes of the cat's heightened stress response, but at the time, we didn't really equate the two events. A few days later, we had another elderly research subject suffer a mild stroke while in our facility, but in a different room from three of the cats to whom she had bonded. And again, the cats exhibited a concurrent heightened stress response. Wait, wait, wait. Now, that sounds a little bit like telepathy. Well, Jim, not exactly telepathy. One of the avenues that we've been examining to explain this phenomenon is through toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis is a bacteria that's extremely common in cats and is transmissible to humans. Long-term exposure to toxoplasmosis is already known to cause psychotropic effects in humans. We believe that since toxoplasmosis reproduces by an unusually accurate cellular division, i.e. mitosis, that the ultimate result may be similar in effect to the phenomenon we uh, see with tuning forks. Uh, in other words, if you strike a tuning fork, then all other forks of identical length in the area will also start vibrating. Because of their nearly identical genetic structure, it may be possible that they're acting as a path for the transmission of mental and emotional states between these animals and their companions. So the cats somehow were responding to the accidents that the, the women experienced? Well, yes. This eventually led us to begin a new study in which we examined the stress responses of bonded and non-bonded cats and humans, both while in the same room and while separated into rooms in which the cats and humans could neither see nor hear one another. The results of this series of experiments was fascinating. We found that when a human was subjected to stress-inducing factors, the cats to whom the human had bonded would respond with similar levels of stress, whether or not they were in the same room as the human. The cat's stress responses were mirroring the human's stress responses. So what about the humans? Did the people get stressed out when the cats got stressed out? Yes, they did. The stress response mirroring worked both ways. And what's more, these effects worked over considerable distances. We began by putting the feline and human subjects in adjacent rooms. Now, the rooms had been soundproofed and contained no windows, but we still wanted to rule out the possibility that the research subjects were picking up some very subtle audible clues or sound vibrations. So we then experimented by separating the feline and human subjects by several walls, then conducting the experiments on different floors, and finally conducting them in two separate facilities roughly 13 miles apart. And in all cases, we saw the same essentially immediate stress response mirroring effect. So you measure stress levels, and you can see that the cats and the humans exhibit matched heightened stress levels, even when they're not in the same room with each other. But that's not the same thing as telepathy. We can't even measure telepathy, can we? Well, we can measure morphogenic fields due to the work being done by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. Most recently, he's been doing some work with Sir Oliver Lodge and uh, Dr. Gardner Murphy, I think it is, over at the Center for Research into Advanced Precognition. And they've made some substantial progress into the measurement of morphogenic fields. These are the invisible vibrations that surround and give shape to all life forms and affect their behavior. Using a special instrument called a psychochromatographer, we can detect and compare the color vibrations of an animal or a human. Studies have shown that similarity in color vibrations between entities indicates similar moods, stress levels, and even ideas between the life forms. So as the colors become very close, that is, the shade, hue, and lightness match or nearly match, we see the morphogenic fields match. 
Now, we can measure the morphogenic fields of the cats in our studies and then alter their stress levels to alter the morphogenic fields. And we find their human companions in the other room and with no ability to see or hear the cat almost immediately experiences a matching change to their morphogenic field. And further, the more cats we have associated with the human and who undergo the same stress level change, the quicker we see the change in the human. So more cats means a quicker change in the morphogenic fields of the people? Uh, correct. Using 23 cats, we've seen a change as quick as 0.03 microseconds in the human. And what's more, the psychochromatographer registered essentially identical morphogenic fields between the cats and the humans. The cats essentially transmitted their state via the morphogenic field, which can extend for at least several miles, remember, because some of these studies were conducted with the feline and human subjects miles apart, to the humans. They telepathically transmitted their emotional and physical states to the human, and the human telepathically received and emulated the cat's state. Interesting. So what happens if you split the cats up and induced vastly different morphogenic fields in them? I mean, what happens to the to the owners then? Well, in, in those cases, Jim, the human companion experiences an averaging of the morphogenic fields, but the average isn't a straight medium. It's more of a cross-logarithmic subscattering of a Fibonacci process as the fields resonate between the cats and the human companion. Uh, we identified... Wait, wait, no, wait, no, wait, 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 wait. You totally lost me there. <laughs> Can you try saying that one to me in English? I mean, if we take a bunch of cats... And we alter their morphogenic fields in a different in different ways. You end up with really confused humans. What, no, I mean, what no, happens? No, 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 no. What happens is that the cat's morphogenic fields all alter the morphogenic field of the person, but to varying degrees. And specifically, we find that the human's morphogenic field would be affected more by the cats with whom she is bonded most closely. So, say a cat she has just recently bonded with, and with whom she shares a much weaker bond. This cat will exert less change in her morphogenic field than a cat who has been her companion for seven to ten years, say, and with whom she shares a very strong bond, but they'll all have an effect. Some of the factors that we see, though, and this is in study after study, is that this effect is not statistically significant in cats that live with more than one human companion, or in cats that have grown up all together in isolation from humans. Well, that's not necessarily good news for Purina, since it would seem to rule out the effect in nursing homes. Correct. Okay, so in cats not growing up in isolation. Do you mean feral cats? Uh, yes, feral cats are cats that have spent significant amounts of times in animal shelters, pet shops, etc. This is intriguing, if not fascinating. I mean, where do, we, where do you go with this next? What type of research are you involved in? Well, there are a lot of different directions we can go with this. Uh, some of my colleagues are trying to determine if the improved pet health companions experience can be focused and controlled. Dr. Penelope Smith is doing some encouraging research in this area, uh, basically trying to induce a morphogenic field associated with healing in a small number of cats in an effort to heal a variety of illnesses in their human companions. I'm also involved in some of the further research into the links between toxoplasmosis, a disease I mentioned earlier, disease often associated with cats, and schizophrenia and other severe psychiatric disorders. Some of our control studies have also shown that the effects we're seeing with cats simply do not appear to occur with dogs or birds or any other pets. So we're also looking to why this is the case. Most excellent. So one final question. What if our listeners would like to know more information about this? Where exactly could they go to get the details? Well, short of subscribing to a variety of journals, the best way to find out more is to visit the uh, Center for Research into Advanced Precognitions website. Uh, that's at http uh, colon slash slash www.crap.org. Most of this research, as well as some of the cutting-edge work we're doing into this field, is written up there. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Laura. Thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure.
welcome to Vance's Shakespearean Hour. This week, we will be fooling you as much as we humanly can with pointless chatter. <laughs> oh, Horatio, what has become of my chatter? And oh, by the way, April Fool's! In case you hadn't figured it out on and, your own. And if you haven't by now, you need some serious psychiatric help. That's right. We have had way too much fun planning this one. Yes, we, we did. We've actually been kind of plotting it since, so I don't since know. Since before the first episode since went out. before we released the first episode. And believe me, they really have. <laughs> they even dragged me into this. We hope you enjoyed the interview with our Dr. Laura. <laughs> She was too much fun. You need to send in requests rapidly via email for the outtakes from these episodes. Trust me. Okay. No, no, I'm discarding those. <laughs> and just in case any of you think that there might actually be an evil geniuses for a better tomorrow out there somewhere, I sure hope not. No, 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 no. The first rule about Fight Club is do not talk about the evil geniuses for a better tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. It has nothing to do with our villain group. It, it's purely fictional. That's right. And this is not actually a real episode, even. No. We're going to be releasing another one in a few days, we hope. Purely for entertainment. Well, you, you know how our schedule works. <laughs> yeah, but the fact that we're saying that it'll go out in a few days, of course, means three weeks. Yes, the, 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 it'll, be out in, it'll be out sometime tomorrow. It may, in fact, be another April Fool's joke. We're not sure ourselves. <laughs> but we're, we're striving for that. They've built me a cotton here, though, so that we can record at will. That's right. I don't have a life anymore. No. I'm just the announcer. No, guy. you have a girlfriend. <laughs> Even better, I have no life because I have a girlfriend. <laughs> this is not a bad thing. Job, girlfriend, no life. That's no right. life. I like having no life because, well, I kind of like her. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Actually, no, let me rephrase that because she probably will be listening to this. I like her a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we don't really have much else. We don't have brain announcements. We have nothing because this isn't real. We have nothing else to say. Nothing. But we're going to say it anyway. Other than we could do the Shakespearean hour if we really wanted. We could. We could. I could go into my whole my whole Macbeth soliloquy. Wait a minute. Wrong episode. Oh wait, wait. I think I think that instead we should go into a quotations we should go into quotations from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. See, I'm not up on that as much as I am on, on Macbeth. Sorry. In 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 great old British accents. In great old British accents, and then we There's should. There's the Shakespeare. Then we should start going off on Mike Python. <laughs> Since I do neither, I'll be leaving at this point. <laughs> we want to strippy. And that's about it. I guess we'll call it. It's a flesh wound. <laughs> oh no, I've started it. I promise we'll spare you. Okay, we'll we'll stop here. Give me I'll bite you in your ankles. <laughs> well, maybe we won't. Send us your feedback, but remember, it's all a joke. It's all a joke. Happy April Fools. Happy April. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Rafflin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the second segment is All in a Night's Work by Steve Sinclair. The music for the interlude is Oriental Distortion by Shiva in Exile, an artist you can hear on Magnatune.com. The music for the second segment is Godspell by Single Seven. The music for the chatter is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic movements. The makers of intellectual icebergs would like to remind you that your shoe's untied. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Ankh Infinity production.